Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 228 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Professor Rebecca Sandifer about the state of access to justice and what it's really going to take to solve the problem. Today's podcast is brought to you by Arog, Ruby Receptionist, Text Expander, and Consult Webs. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So in our ongoing experiment with having each of our podcast intros be on a topical theme... This What's the theme today, Aaron? <laughs> this week's theme is competitive analysis. That's a hard one because it's a scorecard question, but it's the kind of thing where lots of people don't necessarily have an idea in their head of exactly what a competitive analysis is. Yeah, and I think there are a few different questions or dynamics going on. One is a mindset around making an effort to think about who your competitors are, who else your clients are considering, or even what other types of solutions to their problems clients are considering. I think the second component of of the issue is around the analysis side, which is how much of this are you documenting? Are you building strategies from versus just having it as a mindset? And then there's a whole bunch of tactical implications of what tips and tricks might you follow to build this competitive analysis up for your firm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of the scorecard is that people can assess how they want to rate themselves. You know, here's how I think about it. I think there's a practical version of a competitive analysis, and then there's a document that you can produce. And the document is way less important to me than have you actually made an effort to understand who you're competing with, which is not like, do you have a sort of sense? It's do you actually understand I have a very easy tip that I often give people. I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> it's pretty simple, actually. There are two sides to it. One, the easy to say, but somehow hard for lawyers to do side of it is to just ask. Ask everyone who comes to you what else they did to try and solve their legal problem before they contacted you, and who else are they considering? And when I say who else, I also mean do it yourself is an option that is alternative to you. Another lawyer, an online service, uh, going to Office Max and copying some forms, whatever, or the library. Those are all people or things that you're I like that your reference with. is still the library and not all of the forms that you like, can Google. But you can also go to the library and like get legal forms and they will help you fill them out and turn them in. It's like a self-help center. It's amazing. Sure. <laughs> and a hundred percent of the people who are trying to find do-it-yourself forms are Googling divorce document. I suppose it depends on their legal problem, but sure. So that's one thing to do. The other thing I think is really simple is use your browser's incognito mode or privacy mode or whatever it happens to be called in your browser of choice and start thinking about the kinds of questions people will be Googling in order to solve the kind of problem that you could solve for them. And I've said that carefully. Don't, I mean, Google Pennsylvania divorce lawyer if you want, but that's what people Google when they're lawyer shopping, which is fine. You want to know that too. But try and work your way back on the client journey and then look at what the options are. Who's paying to advertise on those search terms? What other companies, firms, services are popping up? Because those are your competition. How do they look and what kinds of terms are they offering? What kinds of websites do they have? That's who you're competing with. I think those are super great, easy to implement, quick win tips. I want to push back just a hair on something you said earlier, which okay. is I totally agree 
that knowing this stuff is more important than documenting it for documentation's sake mm -hmm. and conducting a 20-page thorough competitive analysis strategy something or another PDF is overkill for 99% totally. of yep. people. But I think there is an important in-between part of when you learn the stuff through asking clients or Googling keywords is writing those things down, not just for you to make sure that you're seeing it all in one place and can build from it and try to improve it and think about it, but also so that it doesn't just live in your head and your right. staff or the other attorneys in your firm or eventually your marketing consultant all have access to those things you've put work into. I wholeheartedly agree. Part of this exercise is about building up your firm's knowledge base. And that does require you to document it in an intelligent way. But yeah, I definitely was trying to convey you don't need to go hire a high priced consultant to do a competitive analysis and then deliver a 50 page report that nobody's ever going to read or do yeah, anything. Don't do with. that. Yeah, don't do that. We do agree. the practical version. We of agree. <laughs> Fantastic. And now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Paul Julius from ConsultWebs. And then we'll hear my awesome conversation with Rebecca Sandifer. My name is Paul Julius. I'm the marketing manager for ConsultWebs. ConsultWebs is a legal marketing agency exclusively focused on legal and law firms. We've been helping lawyers connect to clients online since 1999 uh, with all kinds of different digital marketing services, everything from SEO to website design, PPC, video, and more. Hey, Paul, I'm glad you're with us today. Your company put together a marketing nutrition guide, which is both a conceptual approach to try and help us get our heads around marketing as well as a tool. But the idea of a nutrition guide framing is maybe a little weird. So maybe you could explain that a bit. Why are we thinking about this as a nutrition guide? Right. It is weird. This was something that we developed. Actually, it came from sort of our internal struggle. And we realized it's something that probably every marketing department has, whether you're you know an agency or a law firm or anything. And, and this this is a way that we, a framework we developed to help kind of conceptualize the overall holistic approach to, you know, your law firm's marketing. And we based it on the nutrition pyramid. I don't know if anybody mm -hmm. remembers from the, the sure. elementary school. So you have the things at the bottom, your grains and vegetables and stuff that you want to get a couple servings a day. And as you go up, there's things that are, you know, less healthy that, you know, they're not saying don't ever, but you kind of don't want to be building up, you know, your diet off of some of these less good for you foods. And what we found, there's really two goals with any kind of marketing activity here is it's going to be sales activation, which is sort of a short term thing. You see a lot of quick tactics. When you say activation, what do you mean there? So that's like a quick campaign for, you know, maybe a mass tort lawsuit or something like that. That's where you're actually trying to say like, hey, you should hire our firm and then people do that. I mean, a good thing for, you know, short term sales identifier would be like buy it now. Mm -hmm. That's a good indicator that that. Gotcha. And the other thing is brand building, which is long term sales growth. So that's where you're going to you know, get a sponsored post somewhere, get your, your brand name out in front. I mean, even a billboard, like offline stuff, you know, people have to see your brand a certain number of times before they really register it. So those are sort of those longer things. Yeah. And you frame this in terms of the quick hits are that real sales activation. I usually talk about that as the lawyer shopping phase. That's where somebody knows they want to hire a lawyer and they're looking for one and they're actively comparing different lawyers and they're basically just ready to hire someone. And you point out that that's actually the tip of the pyramid. That's the part that should be sprinkled in sparingly because it's not where the actual value of your overall marketing health comes from. So maybe you could walk us through the big picture, like what are the components where we should be focused? Sure. So going with the uh, pyramid example here, at the bottom, your foundation is just going to be, you know, how you treat your clients. I mean, these are things that you shouldn't even, this is, this happens in your office. This doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. happen online. You know, good call tracking, good intake.
intake, stuff like that. The next level up would be your nutrients, which would be, you know, decent SEO, a good UX on your website, good reviews, stuff like that. As we're moving up, we're going to have fundamentals, which is where you're going to have a more strategic approach to your digital advertising, maybe a newsletter. Then there's campaigns, which would be obviously a little bit more like what we talked about before, like a scholarship, maybe an event that your firm is going to be sponsoring, something like that. Then you have these boosts. Again, if you're building like a newsletter, you might have a gated content, something like, a, you know, put in your email for, a, you know, what to do after a car accident guide. And at the top, like you mentioned, is the quick hits. This is probably the riskiest. Again, you know, the whole point of this is that we weren't saying don't ever do it, but just, you know, understand which things you should be doing more of and which things you should be doing less of. Gotcha. So, you know, trying to get something going viral during the Super Bowl, you know, that's fine. But, you know, keep in mind, you're not going to get a ton of clients out of that, you know, so. We know a guy who's done that, right? Who's yeah. taking the money out to get it. But yeah, that's just one piece of it. Absolutely. Now, as our listeners know, we love tools here at Lawyerist. They've probably heard about our small firm scorecard plenty, but you have also put together a tool to help people assess their firm's marketing, nutrition, health. Maybe you could tee that up a little bit. What will they find in the tool? Absolutely. So on the whole page and guide we created here, you'll get obviously a little bit more in depth than what I just ran through. Through, but each thing will, will be laid out there. And then at the bottom, there's an interactive slider thing that you can go through and sort of give yourself a little plate of what your marketing looks like. And you can download that report and it'll actually show it compared to kind of what we see at ConsultWebs, what we've seen the components of the more successful marketing plans are. So you can kind of gauge yourself, see where it is, you know, where maybe you'd like to be and, and look for some changes you can make. And if you'd like to use that, you can find it at consultwebs.com slash nutrition hyphen guide. That's consultwebs.com saltwebs.com slash nutrition hyphen guide, and you can learn more, assess the nutrition of your firm's marketing plan and get your report. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. My name is Rebecca Sandifer. I'm an academic sociologist, and I study how ordinary people think about and handle their justice problems and emerging solutions to help them with those problems. Hi, Professor Sandifer. I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast today. You gave us just the most cursory view of what you do. How do you go about doing that? I know that you've published a lot. You've done some studies. Kind of where does the information come from and how do you go about making it happen and what are the organizations you work with? Sure. So there's kind of two sides of it. So there's the people side and then there's the system or the provider side. Mm -hmm. And so for the people side, the best way to learn about people is either to talk to them or watch them. And so a lot of the research that I do involves either interviewing people about the situations in their lives or giving them surveys about the situations in their lives or doing focus groups, which are kind of like group interviews, so that people can describe things in their own terms and frame the way they think about them the way they think about them, which may not necessarily be the way I think about them or the legal profession thinks about them. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, sort of the, the, the supply side, I guess, those are studies, I've done studies of the contributions of lawyers pro bono work to civil legal aid, and that's by amassing lots of public data sources to kind of calculate the percentage of legal services that poor people receive that come from pro bono, for example and the economic value of that. I've done studies of people who are not lawyers but provide services to people who are involved in court processes, so in eviction or divorce or child maintenance, child custody kinds of hearings. And there you might give service to people in the courthouse or review case files or talk to the providers themselves or talk to their clients. And then most recently, I've studied technologies, so either apps or websites 
that are meant to help you, if you're not an attorney, understand or take action on some kind of justice problem. Gotcha. And so part of that research project involved trying to identify as many of those technologies as I could with a research team that was locked in a room doing searches on iTunes and Google Play and places like that. And then categorizing those technologies in terms of what kinds of services they provide, what kinds of problems they help with, how accessible they might be to different populations. And there's another part of that project that drills down on four of those technologies by talking to people who use them, talking to people who design them, talking to people who are sort of the intermediaries. So librarians, for example, are really important intermediaries for the use of the legal technologies to try to get a sense about what makes those things used, that people will actually take them up and use them for their problems, and also what makes them useful, what makes them efficacious. I'm so tempted to just go down the rabbit hole of geekery on access to justice apps, but I have a plan <laughs> for a <our> conversation. <laughs> and here's where I'd like to start. I feel that so often at conferences where there are lawyers and legal professional people, the way we talk about access to justice can be boiled down to the single statement 80% of the legal need goes unmet and money. And it doesn't usually get much more nuanced than that. And one of the reasons I want to have you on is I think you can help us understand much better what is the state of access to justice today. So in response to your stylized fact of 80% of the legal <laughs> need, this is, would be of the low-income population goes unmet. Yes. It's unequivocally true that that's not true. <laughs> Say more. Thank so, you. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean we know what the real number is, though. Yeah. So that's a that's a definition of access to justice that says if somebody has a justiciable problem, so a problem that raises civil legal issues that they could take some kind of action on or that the other party could take an action on, and that person does not come in contact with a fully qualified lawyer who provides them a certain level of assistance, then there's an unmet legal need, mm -hmm. which I think if you're trying to make an argument for more funding for the Legal Services Corporation is a perfectly fine way to frame the conversation. But if you're trying to do something broader or, or deeper and sort of think about how could we actually identify the justice gap and then actually fill it, then you really need to think about it in a different way. And so I usually step back from lawyers and think to myself, okay, we, the people, because we're still sort of a democracy, have decided there that there are some activities that are so important that we should have a collective state in regulating how they go down. So, for example, your landlord can't just throw you out of your apartment, put all your stuff on the front on the street and, and change the locks, right? If your landlord wants to remove you, we've said there's a process through which this happens. In the same way, if you look around your family and you see someone who is, you think is not caring appropriately for their child, you can't just go take their child and bring them to your house. We have a set of processes about how to do that. Mm -hmm. So then justice happens when whatever the activity is, so it could be work activity, it could be intimate personal relationships, it could be housing, whatever that activity is, goes down in a way that falls within the parameters of the rules we've made. Gotcha. Sort of justice equals due process plus outcomes or something. Justice to me is substantive. I actually don't care whether due process gets you there or not, right? I don't gotcha. care whether you go to a neutral arbiter. If you and the other side just work out a solution that falls within the legal bounds, and that's access to justice from my perspective. By the way, I think justice happens is my new bumper sticker, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So given that definition, which which I think is really helpful, like I think even the 80% of the legal need goes unmet number 
behind that is the presumption that access to justice equals access to lawyers, mm -hmm. which is absolutely not how anybody other than lawyers would think about that problem. So I think it's helpful to rethink that as, you know, access to, you know, getting the kind of an outcome that you would want in this situation and that our society wants you to have. So given that, what does it look like? What, what is the state of access to justice? How many people are getting it and not? Or what kind of context can you give us there? So we do know that if you look at all of the civil justice problems that people report, and so the, the way you have to ask them about this is not by saying, tell me about your civil justice problems, because people are not usually experts on what is legal and what is not legal. So you ask them about specific events in their lives. So for example, if you're in a wage and hour job, is your employer paying you overtime or not? So if he's not, that's actually a civil justice problem. It's called wage theft, but you may not know that. Right. Um, or are you three months behind on your mortgage payment, which is going to put you at risk of foreclosure, whether you know it or not, right? So you ask people about specific circumstances that they can recognize and report on. And if you do that, we're going to have to guesstimate, but somewhere between 100 million and 150 million new such events happen in Americans' lives every year. Right. So there's a tremendous amount of activity of that type. And our best evidence tells us that maybe... 12% of that ever becomes a court case. So across the kinds of things that happen, like your relationship falls apart, there are many people who divorce informally. Mm -hmm. It becomes a court case when they divorce formally, for example. Or, you know, people work out things with their landlords informally about unpaid rent, and so it doesn't become an eviction. But so about 12% of all of that stuff becomes a court case or goes before an administrative tribunal to be adjudicated around, you know, benefits tend not to go to court, they tend to go to tribunal. Are we back talking about access to the justice system, though? Like, I think earlier you said that if you work out your rent payment with your landlord, that's okay, justice has happened. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So, so about 12% of that stuff comes up above the surface to the top of the iceberg, basically. Yep. And it's the justice system, if you think about the justice system as some people who are making adjudicatory decisions. And then if you think about the justice system as including also lawyers, so you might go to a lawyer and the lawyer could give you advice or write a complaint letter for you or tell you not to pursue this because it's not going to be worth it. Then you get to about maybe a quarter of the activity. So 75% of the, at least 75% of the justice problems that ordinary people experience don't touch the justice system ever. Right. Now, probably... Sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it's not worth it. Sometimes people make rational choices because you're going to, you know, there are trade-offs when you when you take a legal action or go see a lawyer. One of them is cost, but one of the things that people think about a lot is the relationships that these problems are embedded in. And what's going to happen to those relationships if I, if I go to a lawyer or I file a lawsuit or something like that? Sure, yeah. We're probably not worried about that activity as long as it resolves lawfully and as long as people don't really, really misunderstand their position. But in that gigantic area of this iceberg of civil justice activity that's below the surface, there's some substantial number of problems that are not resolved lawfully and then often have really serious knock-on consequences when they're not resolved lawfully. Well, and I suppose there's actually, even of those who do hit the justice system in some way, there's also a portion of those where justice doesn't happen because maybe the person did need representation or they couldn't understand what was in front of them. Or I think there's probably a number of ways that people wind up in the courts and justice doesn't happen. Absolutely. So they may not be able to pursue their own case. They may, I, your audience may not want to hear this, but there are some lawyers that are not very good at what they do. Well, full disclosure here, I used to deal with debt collection lawsuits, <laughs> so I saw a lot of justice not happening. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, the justice system makes mistakes. And it also is structured in a way such that it's very difficult for somebody without some kind of assistance to navigate different parts of it. Right. So, yes, both below the surface and once you hit the justice system, there's a lot of justice not happening. We can't put a number on that that's as, 
that's as attractive and simple as the yeah. 80%. The justice not happening gap right. is how I'll describe right. it going forward. One of the things you said, like people deciding when they when they know they have a legal problem and they decide to, to resolve it another way seems fine. You've also highlighted in some of your work that one of the major problems is that people don't necessarily understand that their problems have a legal component. Is that a big problem? And should we worry about that? Well, I think we should worry about it because so for about 54% in a survey that I did of the justice problems that people experience, they describe them as either being bad luck or God's will for me. Right. So they just describe them as things that just happen or that are supposed to happen. And the reason we should be concerned is perhaps less because they think whether they can issue spot the civil justice, the justiciable parts of their problem, but that it also makes them look for solutions that, that socially we may not think are the best, right? So we actually want people whose employers aren't paying them overtime to complain because we want people to be paid their wage. Bankruptcy is a great example of this too, right? I mean, like the society is better off if people file bankruptcy, except creditors have created this culture of shame around it because they would rather just, you know, plunder your bank accounts. Exactly, exactly. And so it's, it's I guess from my perspective, it's less whether or not people can understand that their legal issues are full. Mm-hmm. than that they think of themselves as having interests at stake that they could take action on, and then they make a decision, right? So they make a decision with a little bit, with more knowledge than it seems like they're probably making it now. Hmm. I want to keep going, but we have to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back to keep talking. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your preferred area of law without spending any time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. When you become a provider on ARAG's network, you'll consult with and represent clients on various legal issues from writing a will to dealing with traffic tickets, bankruptcy, or divorce. ARAG does the rest. They'll make it easy for clients to connect with you and even share client feedback so you can keep growing your business. Best of all, ARAG pays you directly and there are absolutely zero out-of-pocket fees to join the network. So what are you waiting for? Visit araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to learn more about the client growth opportunities in your area. Just enter your zip code and area of law to see the number of of ARAG members near you. It all adds up to more potential clients and more opportunities to make money for your firm. Expand your client base right now. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something comes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to get started. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with 
clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. Okay, we're back. So we were talking about the state of the access to justice gap, which it is impossible to describe in a soundbite. But if you had to, how might you describe it? There are millions of Americans who every year confront issues and circumstances that affect the core functions of their lives, like making a living, having a safe and healthy place to live, and taking care of their dependents, whether those are older people or younger people. And many of those problems are governed by the civil law. We've said this stuff has got to go down in a particular way. And there are lots of people who don't have access to the information and assistance they need to push those things in a legal direction. And so we see many injustices and we see many unfortunate hardships that are the consequences of those injustices. You were ready for that. (laughs) So the second piece of the soundbite, the other soundbite, the one that I always hear at Access to Justice gatherings is about cost. And so, so, so much of the legal profession's conversation around how to make access to justice better, how to enclose the gap, whatever, is around cost. After reading your work, after just dealing with people who uh, need help, I can't help but think that a lot of that is misguided. And what have you found about the role that cost plays and how might we be thinking about it wrong when we think that just lowering the cost of legal services will solve things? Certainly when I started doing this work, I thought it was about cost also. Because there are some lawyers who are really, really expensive. And there are some kinds of legal issues that if you pursue them fully, legally, will be really costly. Contested divorces. I mean, that could be $50,000, $100,000. People bankrupt themselves yeah. in uh, contested divorces. But there are lots of other legal services that are quite inexpensive. So if you have a simple estate, it's probably still good to have a will because it makes everything smoother for everybody when you're gone. You can do that for a few hundred dollars. Most Americans still don't, Right. And if you ask them, so you told me you had a specific problem, why didn't you go for help from anyone outside kind of your immediate social network, whether it's a lawyer or not? Cost is about, oh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's maybe the fifth most important reason. Um, It explains 15 or 20 percent of the instances when people don't go out for help. But the most common reasons people give, and it goes back to the way they think about their problems, are either, I already know what to do and I'm doing it. I don't need any advice, mm-hmm. or it wouldn't make any difference, right? So, which is another way of saying I understand the situation and I know it's hopeless, or it's fine, or I'm resigned to it. And so, that's it's cost might play a role later when people start to think about potential options, but in terms of actually framing their problems as things that you solve in a particular way, cost is not any, anywhere near the most important reason that people are not using lawyers. The more important thing is they're not thinking about these problems as legal and therefore as things that lawyers could help them with. Yeah. I feel like I remember the number 17% from your the report you did for the ABA that about 17% of people said that cost played a role in their decision not to hire a lawyer. That was it. Well, 17% of problems, really. Not even people, problems. Right. Yep. Okay. Which means the other 83% are not getting help for some other kind of reason. Yeah. If we solve the cost problem, um, we are potentially just solving it for 17% of the justice gap and not the rest. <laughs> potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Let's talk about what you've found or, or what you know about just generally, anecdotally or through your work. Where do you think we are on addressing this access to justice problem or the justice not happening problem? So I think that, that we're starting to move in some good directions. So one thing that research shows us is that even if you're involved in a court process, 
So you have a you have a full blown no longer just a justice problem; it's a legal problem. Yeah. Um, it is not necessary that a fully qualified attorney provide you assistance in some situations. So there's a body of cases for which somebody who is not a lawyer but has some training in assisting you with a specific kind of situation can be just as effective as an attorney at half the cost or less. And so there are major efficiencies we could be inserting into our access to justice portfolio of solutions. So we're learning that and people are starting to be a little bit more open to that. You're talking about like the in New York, the uh, the navigator program where anyone who's facing an eviction can have a non-lawyer person help them. I think mostly social workers. And among those who got help from navigators, I think the eviction rate dropped to zero. Yes. Yeah. And social workers couldn't do that for every case. If there are complex legal defenses, the social workers knew that they should refer those away to legal aid attorneys. But there's clearly a body of yeah. cases, and this would be true in many areas of law, where you don't need a law degree and lots of years of experience practicing law to help somebody get a just resolution to their problem. And I think that's a, that's a growing recognition, which is why you see some states that are moving to creating, I call them junior varsity lawyers, because they're not allowed to play in the big league. Right. So so limited license legal technicians. So they their their scope of action is usually in a particular area of law, family law, for example, and not even all of that, right? They can right. only do some of it. And they usually have restricted rights of appearance. So in Washington State they can't they can give you legal advice and prepare documents and write letters for you, but they can't represent you, either to the other side outside of court or to the judge inside of court. So they're that's one way that states are trying to think about, okay, maybe we don't need the full firepower of an attorney to help with these different kinds of problems. So I think that's one promising direction. I think another promising direction is coming from two completely different places, which makes me hopeful that it, it might work. So the United States has some of the most stringent restrictions on the provision of legal advice by people who are not fully qualified attorneys. Mm -hmm. And this means that the services that people who aren't lawyers or computer tools that aren't lawyers provide are restricted in ways that make them much less effective than they would be if we could open that space up a little bit. And so you see pressure on that on two sides. So you have lots of nonprofit providers who are not in competition with, with the bar because there's nobody doing a paying service helping poor tenants respond to their evictions, right? There's right. no money to be made there. So providers are a little bit edgy, not all of them, but providers can get a little bit edgy and sort of act a little bit like legal advisors in those situations because they're not going to get in trouble. Then you have on the for-profit side, lots of, in the corporate sector, there are already all kinds of high-powered, high-paying professionals who essentially give legal advice to companies, consulting firms, accounting right. firms. That's already happening in that space. Then in the for-profit personal legal services business, you have providers like LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer that want to unbundle in ways that if that business model really goes to scale, they, they'd be greatly benefited by being able to parcel off some of that advice activity to people who are not necessarily fully qualified attorneys. Mm -hmm. There are people who want to develop for-profit computer tools that would need to be able to act like advisors in order to be financially viable. And so you have this pressure from two different sides of the personal legal services market that I'm hopeful will shove us in a little bit more rational way of thinking about what the boundaries on legal advice should be. If you compare us to the United Kingdom, in the United Kingdom, anyone can give legal advice. Yeah. And because of that, there's this very large advice sector that's well established that people know about. And if you even even when law is free, because the United Kingdom for many years had a very generous legal aid system that follows a model called Judicare. So it's just like Medicare. You get a voucher, 
you take it to a private provider, and the government then pays for your legal services. So even when that was in full force, so lawyers were free, many British people facing justice problems preferred to go to the advice service rather than the free lawyer. Hmm. So I think, there, you know, if you think about creating market options or, or non-market options for that matter that people might want, it's pretty clear they would like to see this stuff unbundled. Yeah. I suppose like when, when you have a problem that has a legal component, the fact that it has a legal component means someone who doesn't have a, a license can't advise you on it. And someone who does have a license is only going to advise you on the legal component. So you're, you might never intersect because you aren't aware it has one. And so people can't develop an advice business based on that problem in the U.S. unless they have a license, which has been slow to evolve. So Exactly. One of the things that gets me frustrated about talking about like the legal technicians or that I'm going to insist on calling them LLLTs, I think, because um, <laughs> I like cumbersome words. But uh, one of my frustrations there is that it's still built around helping people navigate the legal system, which is designed for that you know, archaic lawyer representation. And when I talk to judges, an 80% number that is closer to accurate is in many family courts, for example, 80% of the people who go before the court don't have a lawyer. Absolutely. And yet family courts still think they are places built for lawyers who represent clients, which is bullshit. That's just not true, right? The, <laughs> the numbers show that family courts are places for people to go and represent themselves. But judges don't seem to be willing to even think about that in those ways. And maybe that's just a handful of judges that I've talked to. But I would love to see some building momentum towards redesigning the courts to be places where people can solve their own legal problems. And I'm just wondering, you know, I have a small anecdotal view of this based on conversations I've had. I'm wondering when you are getting out there trying to see what's going on in the world, do you see any, either in the U.S. or elsewhere, do you see any movement towards redesigning the courts so that normal people can get their business done without having to go hire anyone? So the way you see it most often right now in the United States is courts have become more open to the idea that they're filled with unrepresented or self-represented litigants. And those people, unless you're going to radically redesign the court, those people need tremendous assistance in moving mm -hmm. through the court. And so they have court-based self-help. Right. And there's a big, a big network of this, this kind of activity called the self-represented litigation network hmm. of all kinds of different providers and different you know, law libraries, public libraries, courthouses, who are assisting ordinary people who don't have lawyer representation and moving through this stuff. When we talk, when, when this group gets together and when you talk with other kind of progressive court folks, they absolutely agree with you that what you really ought to do is redesign courts entirely, not just to make them procedurally. You, you want the appropriate level of procedural complexity mm -hmm. given the kind of problem that you're working with. So clearly that's mismatched right now. Absolutely. <laughs> the courts are designed around the convenience of judges and lawyers. So why do they open from nine to five, Monday through Friday, when lots of people who have wage and hour jobs really need to be there at a different time? Why can't you have an appointment, right? Why is there a docket that starts at nine and maybe you're going to be seen at two o'clock in the afternoon and maybe you're going to see, be seen at 9.15? Why, when you go into courts, are there no signs? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you the number of courts I've been into where there are just no signs. I think, didn't Margaret Hagen at Stanford do a, an experiment where, where you put the, the colored lines on the floor, kind of like in some airports, and helped people just get to where they needed to go and it made a huge difference in people's ability to use the system? Absolutely. 
exactly. And the way she and the way she discovered that very simple but very powerful intervention was by asking people what would make it easier for them to do this, mm-hmm. not by talking to lawyers about what they thought people might want. Right. And that's got to be a really important shift. And I think it is, you know, the Pew Foundation, which is a, a charitable and, and research foundation in the United States, has a civil justice modernization project okay. that's very focused on thinking about how we can push courts forward. But I think that's a very, my experience of, of state courts in particular in the United States is that they're, first of all, they're very diverse. You know, they're, they're basically organized at the county level. So you got 3,000 some odd different jurisdictions with different norms right. and different cultures. And potentially chambers orders in, in every courtroom. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. And they're also very conservative in some ways. Not all of them. I mean, there, there are some, you know, edgy and experimental judges and, and courts out there, but it, it's a pretty conservative space. And so thinking about how to push it a little bit, I think, is a next generation challenge. Yeah. Are you optimistic about that? Because I, I, I think about this problem and I just am like, the idea of getting, it's easy to say the court should be redesigned. It's easy to propose some ways they ought to be redesigned. But law is fundamentally conservative and it feels like such a big improbable thing. <laughs> and I, I don't know how to be optimistic about that. And so are you? I would say I'm hopeful that we will see some improvements. I'm also optimistic, maybe, which would be more than hopeful, <laughs> that there will be a few jurisdictions that do what you're describing, at least for some specific kind of justice problem. So around family issues. And family issues are a great example for a number of reasons. So one is most people are appearing unrepresented, which is not the way those courts were designed. But you also have judges that are making decisions that are basically not legal. So if you divorce your spouse and then you're trying to figure out who's gonna, you know, whether who's gonna get the kids for Thanksgiving and who's for Christmas, that is not a legal question. <laughs> right. So no, fair point. Yeah. You know, and there's a range there's a range of problems that come into the courts because they're sort of the place of last resort. People need help with those problems. That's why they're there. But sort of thinking about ways to provide help with those problems that de-judicialize them a little bit so that the court then is working on the law stuff and other actors or processes or services are helping with the not law stuff. I mean, I think you'll begin to see that. You see some clumsy efforts where we force people into mediation, um, which is really about reducing court burden. They're like, we don't want to listen to you whine about your problems all the time. So go whine to this guy and then come to us. When you refined your whining to a demand, and that's still a very that's still a very what makes most sense for me as a judge or what makes my life easier as a court clerk, rather than let's talk to the people whose courts these are, by the way, and ask them what they would like from their justice system. Right. You see, you know, in Margaret Hagan's work, you see that, and the courts let her do it. I don't know how long it's going to take, though, for that to be very widespread. You you mentioned alternative dispute resolution. It seems to me that one of the potential trends that we're moving towards, both when companies and people get frustrated with the way the courts work, one of the things they do is start moving their disputes out of the court system. And I realize we're talking about, you know, you said only 12% of civil justice problems even end up in the court system, but is diverting them to arbitration, mediation, binding mediation or not, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the state of justice not happening? I think it depends on how you do it. Mm. So one thing I think most ordinary people don't recognize is anytime you buy something on the internet, whether it's a (laughs) plane ticket or a book, You essentially, when you accept the terms and conditions so you can spend your money, you sign away your right to use the legal system to resolve any disputes that come up around that purchase, right? But you don't know that because the terms and conditions are like 45 pages long, 
And really, if the internet is pretty much the way you buy plane tickets, are you actually going to go get a bunch of cash and go down to the airport to avoid giving up your legal rights, right? Well, and then you get then you get diverted into terrorist um, watch activity anyway. So <laughs> exactly because because you because you have the big envelope of cash. So you know there was already an imbalance of power between corporations yeah. and people. That just shifts it further, right? Because those arbitration processes are not third-party independent arbitration processes. They're the internal arbitration processes of the vendor. So that was something that legislators allowed to happen because of political interests. And so the way to solve that is to go back to the legislative system and say, listen, wait a minute, let's have some consumer rights again. I think there are instances, though, where you can design mediation or arbitration processes that can be fair because they're independent of the two parties involved in the dispute And because the dispute is legally simple enough or non-legal enough, like it's more about the conflicts between the parties than the actual legal issues that might be at stake, that what you really need is somebody who can spend a lot of time talking to you about what's going on. I'll give you a crazy example from the Netherlands. So the Netherlands uh, designed this online divorce portal. You could divorce together (laughs) entirely online. It had all sorts of family therapy stuff built into it about identifying your goals, for, you know, what, what your relationship's going to be like after it's over and how you're going to deal with your kids and all this kind of stuff. And of course, people reached impasses in those decisions. And you could, your first step was you could ask for a mediator and three of them would pop up. There'd be a little description of them and their experiences. And then you would have to pick two and your soon-to-be ex-spouse would have to pick two. And so you'd have an overlap and that would be your mediator. Mm-hmm. And if one of you wasn't happy with the results of the mediation, you could go to the arbitrator. You'd have the same kind of thing. And because it's the Netherlands and this was a for-profit, well, it was a paying service, you had to pay, right? So you had to pay for each mediation. You had to pay for each arbitration. And so was it, if you're thinking about the economic incentives to get along, you kind of built them in a little bit there. It sounds a little bit like Shannon Salter's work at the Civil Resolution Tribunal in Canada as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you could think about trying to balance kind of fairness and objectivity, which is one of the things we want from the justice system, with things that right now the justice system, the only thing that makes people behave in an efficient way is they have to pay a lot of legal fees. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so are there other ways to, to sort of encourage them to resolve things in ways that are proportionate to the issues at stake? So I started us out by talking about how everything lawyers think about access to justice is wrong. And then we talked about how the court systems could fix this. But most of the people listening to this podcast, if tradition holds, will be solo and small firm lawyers. And there'll be innovative-minded solo and small firm lawyers and entrepreneurial-minded solo and small firm lawyers. But I think by now they're probably wondering, okay, what does this mean for me? How can I help solve this? How might I be able to take advantage of this and offer services that are better tailored to people who wouldn't ordinarily come knock on my door? What role do you think lawyers, and especially solo and small firm lawyers, could play in increasing access to justice, increasing justice happening? I'm so glad you asked that question. There's an enormous untapped latent market for legal services among ordinary people in this country. Uh, There are people who need, I'll give you an example, there are people who need assistance. So there are lots and lots of people whose parents can't, kids whose parents can't care for them for various reasons, mental illness, substance abuse, military deployment. And then there'll be other family members, grandparents and whatever that want to step in and take care of that kid, which is good because it keeps kids out of the foster system. They stay in families that they know. There's all kinds of good things about it. You would think you could just go pick up your grandchild from daycare Take her home, Mm -hmm. get her vaccinated, get her some insurance, enroll her in school, but you can't, right? You need a whole set of legal instruments to do that. So there's all kinds of ordinary justice problems like that that people have all the time. 
that they don't realize lawyers can help them with. Yeah. And so that's this big untapped market. I think there are two things I would encourage your listeners to think about. One is if ordinary people are not sitting around thinking that they have legal problems, they're not sitting around thinking that they have lawyers. So how can you do outreach with your community and frame what you do in a way that frames what you offer as a solution to a problem that they understand themselves having? Taking care of your grandchild, dealing with a bad employer, dealing with a crappy landlord. Mm-hmm. Right? So how can you, what's, what's the framing you can do there? And then the other thing that's really kind of baffling to a non-lawyer about lawyers is why aren't there prices? <laughs> right? Why can't you give me a menu? Why isn't yeah. there some kind of transparency about what's going to happen? And I know that lawyers who are committed to the hourly billing models will come back and say, well, you never know how complex it's going to be and how long it's going to take, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. <laughs> but give me a range. You know, yeah. if I do your will, it's probably going to cost this much. If we do this divorce and it's, and it's uncontested, it's probably going to cost this much. But if it's contested, I want you to realize... We can go back to court 15 times. Yeah. And each time I go to court, I'm going to charge you this. Um, I mean, I think that's, we do that with lots and lots of other consumer goods. Why don't we do it <laughs> with law? I mean, I think that kind of transparency. I think one of the other reasons is that lawyers are afraid of price fixing accusations, which is a mostly unfounded concern, or maybe they're just ashamed of their prices. I don't know. <laughs> well, they're afraid of price fixing accusations, or they're afraid of engaging in price competition with the other members of their monopoly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but <laughs> took a minute for that to hit, but yeah. yes. <laughs> You know, so it may be that in order for, for – there are two questions there. So is it possible for lawyers to be more transparent about prices now within the existing rules? But then the rules are not – I mean, they're not from God, right? We made them up. So could we could we think about how maybe we could change that a little bit? I mean, lawyers – when the advertising rules changed 40 years ago, there was only a few lawyers advertise, even though many, many, many lawyers are permitted to engage in that activity. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain kind of like let's – Stop being quite so conservative mm-hmm. <laughs> if you really want to reach people. And it's not about being one of the stereotypical things we say about lawyers. It's not about being a shark, right? right? It's about thinking about you play a really important role in mediating between ordinary people and their public justice system. We've set it up that way. So how is it that you can better help the people who should be connecting with you Realize that you do something useful for them. Mm-hmm. How can you meet them where they are? I feel like that's a really nice place to end, except I want to ask you if I neglected to ask you anything that you wanted me to. Hmm. Was there something we should have talked about that we didn't? No, I would just want to emphasize that, particularly for your listeners, some of these things may seem threatening, like the restrictions on the provisions for legal advice or the growth of non-lawyer providers or the growth of computer programs that can do some of the stuff that historically only lawyers did. But there's no reason those things can't be incorporated into their business model Mm -hmm. so that they span more market segments and they do it in a more efficient way so that they're not doing stuff that doesn't require their law license. Someone else is or something else is, but that's still part of their work model. I think there there are a lot of opportunities there and a few folks are starting to explore them, but not very many. Yeah. You know, one of the things I I often talk to our community about is that although I am somewhat pessimistic about certain things like the ability of the courts to change, I'm 100% confident that the access to justice issues that we face are going to get fixed. I'm also pretty confident that lawyers play a really important role in fixing those problems, but they don't have to. 
those problems are going to get fixed with or without lawyers. And you, you want to be part of the solution because if not, it's not that you're part of the problem, it's that you become irrelevant and that would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The more optimistic way of stating that is like, get on now, like start start being a part of the change you want to see in the world instead of cowering in fear of it and trying to get in the way of it. Amen. Professor Sandiver, thank you so much. It has been my pleasure to talk with you about this. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.